Hey folks! Welcome to another episode of The Shrink and the Pundit. I'm Jeff Salzman, the Pundit, and I'm here today, as always, with my longtime comrade and integral psychotherapist extraordinaire, Dr. Keith Witt, who is The Shrink. Dr. Keith has really moved the ball on integral psychotherapy in over 40 years of private practice and over 50,000 individual sessions. You can check out his books, videos, as well as the School of Love and Therapist in the Wild series at his website, drkeithwitt.com. You can find more of my commentary on politics and culture at my Daily Evolver blog and podcast, which is found at dailyevolver.com. So, how you doing today, Dr. Brother Keith? <laughs> well, I'm doing great, Brother Jeff. I'm happy to be with you as always and happy to be talking about marriage. Yeah. Well, that's our topic today, uh, uh, marriage. And of course, it's a topic that's really core to the lives of most of us. And as I said earlier, you've made a career out of helping people uh, basically have better, more loving relationships in general. Uh, you've been married to your beautiful wife, Becky, for over 30 years. So you really have an intimate insight and perspective, I think, on this institution. And, you know, with taking all of that into consideration, what can you say? about the state of marriage these days? Well, it's interesting. And one of the reasons I wanted to uh, have this conversation is I want to make a case for integral marriage because um, marriage simultaneously is, is robust in the world and in the Western world, but also it's fragile, particularly in the United States and challenged in the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the state of marriage is, is strong because we're biologically driven, genetically driven to marry each other, to pair bond. Yeah. Um, and the nature of consciousness is that when people are growing, as they grow together and they're pair bonded, and if they keep the channels of the bond open, you know, if there's, if there's mutual influence going back and forth along those channels, that relationship evolves and progresses into levels that have just not been known, at least in great numbers, um, in the history of the human race. You know, that's really exciting. And, and when we look at the history of marriage, and this is one of the things Integral lets us do, is, you know, we can see that marriage has changed, just as we've changed in different yes. stages of development. And, and of course, there's going to be a new thing. You know, there is going to be such a thing as Integral Marriage. Uh, so, you know, what is it, how does, how does it fit into the flow of marriage historically? And, you know, what can you tell us about it from more of an integral perspective? Developmentally, the closest archetype to modern marriage in terms of power and influence is um, from at least some hunter-gatherer groups. With the advent of agriculture, um, marriage shifted as the power dynamic shifted, and women essentially became pa- property and continued to be property well into the 20th century. Um, and now in the 20th century, with liberation movements and so on, we now have the, the egalitarian marriage. We have the, the, the partnership, the equal partnership. We had a legally, and as usual, we had a legal, just like um, uh, uh, with uh, racism, we had a legally first, and then socially we proceeded to catch up. Right. Um, and in the United States, the reason that, that marriage is fragile is because individual people, individual marriages don't exist in a vacuum. They, they exist in a variety of social contexts. And there are social contexts that support marriage and the social contexts that make marriage difficult. 
Um, for instance, uh, uh, when people feel insecure, when they feel distressed, when they feel anxious, when they feel like there are unsure resources, what happens under those circumstances is they develop symptoms. And the symptoms are uh, anxiety, depression, distorted uh, states, and so on. And the places that those uh, defensive states and symptoms show up most uh, frequently is in your most intimate relationships. Mm-hmm. So to the extent that in the United States we're um, financially insecure, um, medically insecure, insecure as parents, that kind of stuff, all that stuff stresses, puts stresses on marriages. Um, and so, so not surprisingly, you find uh, fewer, fewer marriages, um, more divorces in lower socioeconomic levels um, in minority communities where there's a lot of anxiety, a lot of uncertainty. Everybody uniformly has an ideal of a lifelong loving partnership. Um, but the only group in the United States where divorce rate is going down is in college graduates. Um, it's going up um, elsewhere. And, and people that are high school graduates are quite skeptical of the, of the probability and possibility of a successful marriage. Um, so there's, there's those forces. Also in the United States, interestingly, there are lower left quadrant and lower right quadrant forces that both reify marriage, but also challenge marriage. So I just mentioned some of the lower right quadrant uh, problems that challenge marriage. In the lower left, uh, uh, there's a, a romantic standard in the United States which says that we should be in love with each other throughout our lifetime effortlessly. <laughs> well... Statistics show that about 20% of marriages are people that, that marry, fall in love with each other, and do pretty well throughout their lifetime. Now, I suspect that at some point along the way, they naturally start becoming more intentional, but I don't have any data about that. 45% of uh, marriages have problems, sometimes severe problems, but the people address those problems, um, they get intentional about solving them, and then they get back to a more stable place. Um, and then 40 to 50% of marriages end in divorce. And the people who divorce still want to be married. 80% of men and 70% of women who divorce marry again. Um, uh, we want that relationship. Um, we want that particular bond. Yeah. But that myth, that lower left quadrant myth about it should be effortless and there's a problem with the marriage if there's a problem, um, gets people to begin to question um, themselves and question their marriage um, when problems arise. And now we, we, we kind of go in now up into the upper left and then the individual where there's not a great understanding of commitment in this culture. And so marital commitment um, um, gets, gets uh, confused um, with people and because they don't really know uh, what the nature of progressive commitment in relationship is. With commitment, that's when you're making your case for integral marriage, there's really three pillars that you're talking about, right? One is mm-hmm. commitment, one is attachment, and the third is the marital love affair. These are the components of what you're calling an integral marriage. Yeah. And so there is a different sort of uh, quality of commitment as we move up the scale here. Yeah. So, and so let, let me talk, let's talk about that because I, I think that, and, and this is where integral is so wonderful. You know, there's, I mean, I do a lot of reading, of course, just like any integral person. We're all, we're all, you know, information junkies, right? Yeah, kind of hoarders, information hoarders. <laughs> yes, that's true. Um, and so, in the literature, there's 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 two uh, kind of uh, branches. One are the cl- clinicians 
who have worked with married couples and work with sexuality and work with um, uh, commitment and that kind of, and they have they have this one body of literature there. William Doherty is one of those people. Um, uh, uh, the woman who wrote uh, Mating Captivity is one of those people. Uh, David Starch is one of those people. And then over in the in the other hand, we have people who research marriage. Um, Thomas Drury from UCLA, John Gottman, who basically bridges both of those to a certain extent. Now the researchers just look at what is. They just you know come up with the statistics and describe um, how things work and how commitments work and so on, and, and also sometimes come up with um, uh, their research leads them into clinical uh, approaches. That's how John Gutman uh, developed his system, and that's how Susan Johnson, who does emotionally focused therapy, she developed her system out of attachment research. Mm -hmm. The clinicians tend to be somewhat moralistic. Uh, you, they, well, Keith, you said moralistic. Yeah, they they make moral judgments against American narcissism. Jean Twinge is like this. Uh -huh. Yeah, she just gets on her high horse and just goes on and on and on about it. You know how millennials have more narcissism and people are more individualistic and et cetera, et cetera. Now all that stuff is true, um, but that's partial. And so um, we really you really don't get very much progress if you find yourself taking an, an area, say, the increase of narcissism and pathologizing it without saying, what does it tell us about how the culture is developing and what do we need to do to support the evolution of consciousness and help people be happy and healthy? Well, and I just, just to stop there for a second, I, I hear that about, you know, we're more and more narcissistic. I'm not sure I buy it. I mean, I'm not sure that it's just not the nature of green versus orange, first of all, mm -hmm. where green just gets more interested in their own interiors. That's not necessarily narcissism. That's actually self-observation and self-analysis and knowing the, oneself. Well, that's and, the healthy version. Okay. See, for the last 20 years, 25 years, we've had kid-centric parenting in the United States. If you're a parent that parents your child in a kid-centric way, telling the kid he's better than everybody else all the time, that kid is at risk to develop narcissistic traits and maybe narcissistic personality disorder, particularly if you're not, if you're not uh, very attuned. And so we, on, on every narcissism um, scale, you know, there's two or three times more narcissism at every level. Children, at, you know, uh, as college students and so on. But if you are, have a self-reflective family and you're not telling your kid he's better than everybody else, you tell your kid that you're interested in, in growth and progress and you're very interested in his interior life and his, his other life and you want to help him do well, you develop a very, very thoughtful, self-aware kid. And this is where we've, we have... Uh, these young, um, self-aware little Buddhas that are running around as yeah, millennials. They're like wise. It's amazing. They're wise. And, 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 so, and so what we have is we have more wisdom, way, way more wisdom from these, these young people, but also we have more narcissism. You can see that in the, the popular media. Um, there are, there, reality TV has shows that aggrandize narcissism essentially and then you have incredible thoughtful um, dramas that, that, that look deep into the human condition and have um, very enlightened perspectives yeah and so at least around around marriage what the researchers have found and what the clinicians have found is that um, is that there's three things that that seem to characterize the healthy marriages um, one thing that characterizes them is intentionality Healthy marriages have people that intend, that have the intent, the intentionality to maintain their marriage, to maintain each other. The second thing that healthy marriages seem to have is that people have a series of rituals or ceremonies, daily, monthly, weekly, yearly, that sustain them as a couple. 
And the third thing that healthy couples uh, do is they have a cultural context somehow that supports their marriage. Um, there was an interesting uh, book written on architecture and um, uh, American culture saying that, that modern houses are about 1,000 square feet bigger now than they were 25 years ago. The average was 1,700 square feet 25 years ago, and it's about 2,700 square feet in uh, middle class, upper middle class. And the, the speculation is that we were to, we, the, the big entranceways now uh, replace, um, say, the... Uh, the uh, the meeting hall, uh, the breakfast nook replaces the diner, uh, the dinner the the media room replaces the theater. Because of that, uh, American families have become more insular because you can't replace other people with architecture, and the absence of other people means that nuclear families tend to be very focused on themselves, without a lot of um, added um, uh, input from their culture. Uh, a woman did a comparative study of Italian families and American families and was staggered by the fact that American families were very kid-centric, um, didn't really relate much with other adults. Well, Italian families, on the other hand, Italian in the literature, there was not one reference to family time in the Italian literature. Italian uh, families would have dinner at 8 o'clock, and sure, the kids would be there, but other people would be there. That there was an adult culture that the kid was, kids were supposed to participate in, while in America, essentially it's a child culture that, where the parents become service providers to the kids in the child culture. That's interesting. Now, if parent and service provider is included, kids' nervous system will just adjust to that, and they won't feel like citizens in the family. They'll feel like service receivers in the family. They don't have a sense of their own personal responsibility or yep. their own personal citizenship. And without that, that creates problems with kids, entitlement, narcissism, that kind of stuff. And I found that very interesting. And so that surround, that cultural surround that supports the relationship, plus an understanding that the heart of a family is the marital relationship. Yeah. I told a couple about three days ago, I said, look, the presence of you having a good marriage in terms of the value to the development of your children is way more important than the absence of anything else you provide them. You could get rid of everything you do for them, you know, all the lessons and all the special schools and all the other stuff, and have a great relationship with each other. And your kids are going to turn out better than if you have a lousy relationship with each other and you provide every enrichment known to man. It's that important. Hmm. And so that's why uh, you really have to get, <laughs> I tell parents, you know, you need to have time to yourself. You know, once kids get old enough to understand mommy and daddy time, you tell them it's 830. Um, don't, don't knock on the door, come into the bedroom unless the house is on fire, there are intruders at the door, or you have to go to the hospital. Otherwise, <laughs> we don't want to hear about it because we're off the clock, we're on with each other, and, you know, we're having mommy and daddy time. Right. And so the, this, this idea of intentionality, of ceremony, and so on, um, and a cultural surround is acted out through commitment, attachment, and the marital love affair. Okay, so and, these are your three pillars of the integral marriage. So yeah. let's look at the, the commitment side of it. So commitment is a word like, um, say, fear, that has many meanings. For instance, in, uh, you know, fear can have you really be mobilized, or fear can have you be collapsed with two completely different physiological systems. Well, commitment, there's different kinds of commitment in a relationship, and the commitment shifts as you go through the different lifestyles. All relationships start with the as long as commitment. And the as long as commitment is, if I have sex with somebody, you know, you know, we go home together and everything, and I intend to see them tomorrow, 
Um, I have a commitment now. I'm going to stay with you as long as something. As long as we're great with each other. As long as I don't find somebody else. As long as we can work our problems out. As long as we're still hot. As long as, as long as, as long as. Okay? That's how relationships should start. And we stay with each other conditionally. We're going to stay with each other as long as it works and so on. Yeah. At a certain point, we, we pass through the romantic infatuation period where we are literally medicated by our brains <laughs> to be completely into each other and forgive each other for all our, our problems. We pass from that into intimate bonding where we're less sexually urgent and we're less deluded about our partner. And then the defenses and the learning from our family of origin comes up under stress and we have problems. How we handle those problems reveals an awful lot. This is one of the reasons why one of the five stars, that I, the five questions that I encourage people to ask is, does this person take care of their, uh, is this, if we were in conflict, would this person be able and willing to do t- what it takes to get back to love? And then the other questions, of course, does this person maintain their physical and psychological health? Um, would this person show up as a parent or a family member? Does this person support my deep purpose or have deep purpose? Is there erotic polarity? Um, those five questions orient us around, is this person a candidate for a deeper commitment? And so what is a deeper commitment from the as long as? Well, the deeper commitment is I'll do what it takes. Um, a guy named Thomas um, uh, Brattery in UCLA found that couples that had an as long as it I'll, takes commitment, which is, yeah, I'm committed, um, but I'm not really inclined to do stuff didn't stay together nearly as much as couples who were inclined to do things on a daily and weekly basis. I'll do what it takes to be together. So that I do what it, I'll do what it takes is a shift from what um, William Doherty calls the consumer marriage to a different kind of marriage. The consumer marriage is you relate to your marriage or your spouse, kind of like your Honda. I have a 2007 Honda. Boy, it was really great, but yeah, it's 2015. There's there's newer models out. My (laughs) Honda's beginning to to sputter a little bit. I think I'm going to trade it in on another one. And so, you know, I'm I'm worth it. You know, know, this is, we go to the lower Something a little more exciting. Yeah, something a little bit more exciting, a little bit faster. So I go to my friends. So this is now we go to the lower left. And I go, you know, I'm not satisfied. I'm bored. I'm having problems, this kind of stuff. And your friends say, well, you deserve better. You deserve a better Honda. You know, you deserve a better husband or wife or whatever. <laughs> um, you know, this is reflected in, they ask a bunch of divorced people, did you work hard to maintain your marriage? And did your spouse work hard? 75% said, yes, I worked hard to maintain my marriage, but only 25% said, my spouse worked hard to maintain my marriage. Interesting. Now, if you think about that, there's a certain amount of people even in denial about how hard they worked and in denial about how hard their spouse worked. And this is a big deal with kids because... 70, you take all the divorces, 70% of couples who divorce are low-conflict couples who just get bored with each other, tired of each other. There's an affair they, they don't want to work on or something. And kids do better with low-conflict parents if they stay together. Hmm. The only time the kids do better in divorce is that 30% of couples that are high-conflict couples. And so you, what you want in a marriage is you want, I'll do what it takes commitment. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, I will do what it takes. Now, we start thinking about, I'll do what it takes. Now we're entering integral living, integral mindfulness territory, because what does that mean? Well, now we're, we're moving into attachment, which is a typology system. Typology system of attachment is there's four different kinds of attachment that human beings have. And one of them is great, and the other three aren't. And you can measure the attachment style of a 10-month-old child, and it'll be one of these four styles, and that'll be pretty consistent throughout life through most, with most children. Wow. Um, now, 
luckily so, the good news is that we can change our attachment style. And I'm going to explain what I mean by all this. But the you're saying it's sort of set by 10 months. And not only is it set, we haven't found any genetic disposition for a particular attachment style in the research. In other words, attachment style seems to be primarily created by the social intersubjectivity of the child and the parents, particularly the mother. Now, I, I have a disagreement with the attachment researchers about this. They say that means that there's no research that shows a predisposition for a different attachment style. I go, you're reading your data wrong. What this means is that all human beings are predisposed to have secure attachment, which is the good kind, if they're given the right conditions. And that if they don't get the right conditions, they're not going to have a secure attachment. Good point. And now here are the four attachment styles. One is, is secure attachment. Secure attachment in a child is that, an, or an infant or, a, or even an older child, is that they feel secure enough with their parent that they can get the kind of strokes and attention and attunement they need. And then they go off and explore the world and they, they feel pretty okay exploring the world. But then when they get distressed, they come back to their parent and there's a rhythm of attention, exploration, individuation, and affiliation that the parent gets into. They're contingent uh, and, and congruent. And this creates a securely attached child. And that grows into an adult that has what's called um, an, an, an autonomous and a coherent autobiographical narrative. An adult that has a sense of themselves having a life story that makes sense. There's a past, present, and future that fit together. And I'm an assertive person guiding my way into, in this life into, another, into a good life. That's a securely attached adult and a securely attached child which is what we all want. About 55% of the kids in this country are securely attached. It used to be a higher percentage, but the, the, the um, demands of modernity um, are such that there is less secure attachment in the United States than there is, was before, and there's more secure attachment in other cultures where there's more support for families and there's more education about how people relate. Yeah, weren't you saying, uh, when we were talking about this earlier, that in Sweden, uh, a child born of unmarried parents is more likely to be with both of them as a teenager than married kids of married parents in the States. Am I right? Yeah. yeah. A, a kid born to unmarried parents in Sweden is more likely to be living with both biological parents at 16 than a kid born to married parents in the United States. Wow. And that's because Sweden supports marriage because it supports the conditions that support marriage. Yeah. Sweden has a lot of social programs that support um, people affiliating with each other. They, they, they provide medical security. They have parental leave. Um, they provide child care. Um, they don't let people uh, slip through the cracks. If people don't have work, they, they want people, they help people get work. And this translates into people being more secure in their relationships and, and, being, and having the, the psychotherapy as well as the medical care that they need to, to make things work. Well, it's a little bit like what we talked about last uh time which on depression which is the the royal road to depression is to have expectations put upon you that you can't meet that's right isn't that something yeah so you know the expectation is to have a family and a house and you know raise your kids and and and, and have the, your basic needs met and there are a lot of people in this country for whom that's not really possible well some of the most unhappy people in the country are uh women in their late 30s and 40s, who waited to have kids, expected it to be great, and it's not great. And they're pissed off about it. Yeah. And women initiate more uh, divorces than men at every level, and increasingly as people get older. 
And so attachment style is a big deal, and it runs off of attunement. So that's secure attachment. What's insecure attachment? Well, insecure attachment, there's different kinds. One is if a parent is dismissive about, uh, about emotion, the kid will become avoidant and will not be aware of his own emotion and others and be kind of slightly hostile. If a parent is preoccupied and allows himself to get lost in distress, you'll have a kid who's ambivalent and anxious, not easily soothed, clinging, and so on. And if a parent is frankly crazy, they're disorganized, they'll have a kid who's frankly crazy and disorganized. Now, the beautiful thing is that you can go from an insecure attachment style to a secure one through one great intimate relationship. Hmm. If, if you have a great intimate relationship, you can shift your attachment status from insecure to secure. And one a couple of researchers in Los Angeles talked to a bunch of couples that were happily married after 25 years, asked them a lot of questions, and they concluded that a lot of these couples weren't very secure when they married, but because they received influence from each other, they attuned to each other. You know, attunement, awareness with acceptance and caring intent of what you're sensing, feeling, thinking, wanting, and judging, and, and being curious about what your partner, with acceptance and caring intent about what your partner is sensing, feeling, thinking, wanting, and judging. That these couples, through that attunement, through receiving influence, had helped each other grow and secure attachments throughout their marriage. Hmm. I mean, it also can happen with, with uh, friends, with teachers, with psychotherapists, and so on. Well, okay, I, so it's, can, it's, it's funny because it's, I, I'm, as you're saying this, I'm thinking this was true for me when I was in my first relationship, you know, I would travel, I was doing a lot of business travel and so forth. And I didn't call, his name was Tim, you know, I'd be gone for three, four, five days. I wouldn't call him. And, you know, I was just, I was a lone wolf and I was in a relationship, but I was a, basically fundamentally just sort of a, you know, on my own. And when I got with my second guy, Greg, he had been married to a woman for 12 years, first of all. That's what he sort of attributes this to. He learned how to do it. <laughs> well, women uh, are, have more social circuits. It's true. Yeah. And, and a lot of gay men maybe, you know, in general, don't get this as, as, as well. We, we need to be trained by women. But he was at any rate. And he was like, no, you can't go away and not call me. You, you can't not say I love you. You have to, you know, we have to do things together. We have to spend time together. And I was like, oh, really? And, and it was really literally news to me. It took me, you know, I, I stepped into it a little bit, you know, not so skillfully and it, it was some bumps along the road. But within a year of his tutelage, I, I'm, I feel like I'm a different person and it was a permanent acquisition. I really learned a lot of what it means to actually be with another person that I didn't know before. So you were intentional. So you can see what you did. You were intentional. We want. We intend to stay connected and loving. And you created ceremonies of con of, con of connection to maintain each other. Yeah. And these ceremonies of connection are a big deal. You know, you have ceremonies of how to handle conflict. We we start kind of respectfully and we don't attack each other. We have ceremonies of pleasure. Um, of of hanging out, of having conversation, of having coffee, of making love, of of certain kinds of play. We have ceremonies of, and so on. This intentionality creates a series of rituals that you institute into your life. They're part of the schedule where you maintain each other. And the sense of responsibility to be maintaining each other, to, if I'm in a relationship with you, to maintain you by letting you know in ways that work for you that you are loved by me and helping you maintain me by letting you know what I need from you so that I'll feel loved by you. Because... When we're in relationship with someone, they're always with us. That, you know, when you were away for a week, you were still in relationship mm -hmm. with your lover. 
But he was, he was away thinking that you didn't care for him. And so the Jeff in his relationship started to be not a very great Jeff. Yeah. So you needed to maintain that great Jeff, which you did with Greg, by calling him up and saying, here's the Jeff that loves you. And how are you doing? Yeah. This is Jeff that's interested in you. And then he was the Greg. This is the Greg that loves you. And this is the Greg that's interested in you. That was a ceremony of connection. That's intentional. At some point in a marriage, as you go through the life stages, which are very demanding, I mean, Jesus, I mean, you know, falling in love is demanding. Intimate bonding is demanding. God help us. Transitioning into parenthood, middle age, old age, you know, crises. To, to be able to maintain each other and our love for each other requires intentionality, and we need to create these ceremonies and rituals of connection and of problem solving and so on. It's a really big deal. And this is why intentional marriages and why um, people who take this seriously they basically go, I have a responsibility to maintain you and to help you maintain me in love with each other. And Helen Fisher, when she was doing a, a functional MRIs on people that were in love, she found all these addiction circuits acting, you know, lighting up and all these dopamine uh, circuits in the ventral tegmental area, uh, nucleus activins lighting up and attachment circuits. And, and she found this in people that were in the in love stage. She, she did mostly people that had been in love for nine, nine months. But also in her research, she found some long-term couples where those same circuits lit up. You know, hmm. how did those couples maintain the romantic circuits? Well, that's intentionality. That's, that's maintaining each other. And also, Jeff, that is the marital love affair. That is sex, 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 sex. <laughs> and this is pillar number three of the interval marriage. Pillar number three, the commitment, attachment, and the marital love affair. Yeah, I swear, Jeff, I've been, my whole life, I feel like I've been tilting at this windmill of, of American cluelessness about sex. <laughs> yeah. Well, and you, like I said, you and Becky together 30 plus years now, right? 41 and years we've been together. 41 years. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, I've known you a long time. Uh, my guess is you're in a marital love affair, right? Oh, yeah. And it required an awful lot of work in our <laughs> marital love affair. Uh, first of all, because we came together in the 70s when nobody knew anything about anything. <laughs> you know, I, I did my sex therapy training in, in the 70s. Uh, I, was a, I was a certified sex therapist. So, you know, I studied a lot of different systems. And I, I practiced it and taught it. And I was, I was kind of at the birth of that movement. Um, and sex therapy in the, in the 70s was way different than sex therapy today, partly because the, the culture has progressed to, to a certain extent. Oh, tell, what's, tell us what's the you know, key difference between the 70s and today in terms of sex therapy. Well, first of all, nobody knew about relationship or sexuality from a neurobiological or developmental standpoint. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was, you know, basically people had a lot of, a lot of black and white conceptualizations and, and, and also human beings, um, uh, can make up and can imagine anything. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so everybody was imagining that they could be in love all the time. And they can have more than one lover and I have primary and secondary relationships and everything will be all groovy and it's fine. And we can do this because we can imagine it. You know, the O'Neills wrote the book, Open Marriage. Uh, they eventually divorced, of course. Um, <laughs> but, but, but not before it changed the zeitgeist. Um, uh, and, well, you uh, find a lot of young people, a lot of millennials now, who yeah. are into polyamory and, you know, sort of trying to have conscious love affairs outside or, or threesomes or sex clubs or, you know, and not just the millennials. But, well, uh, sure. Now, if you understand that as a developmental stage, great. 
Yeah, you know, the the difference between Becky and me and everybody else we knew in the 70s, and I mean everybody else we knew in the 70s, <laughs> without exception, is that we stayed together doing all that stuff. Uh -huh. You know, doing all that, you know, the group sex and, you know, the primary, secondary and this and that and so on. I remember I finally, you know, kind of gave up at 1981, 82. I just, just went, you know, I'm monogamous. I, you know, I've been with, I, I don't want to, Develop relationships with other people. I want to have a better relationship with Becky. I, they're probably my friends. Now, just forget about me, you know, and when you guys are planning stuff, because <laughs> I'm a monogamous person. I'm sorry. You know, right. I felt like it was kind of a character flaw, actually, in those days. <laughs> um, and, and so, even in, in sex therapy, people were not informed by the research that, that we're informed with. Um, mm -hmm. and, and also, uh, in the 70s, partly what the whole culture needed was permission to be sexual, and women needed permission um, to be assertive. Yeah, that's right. And in fact, there was this huge sex therapy movement in California where everybody and his brother was a sex therapy, and then the whole movement collapsed in 1978 or 79. And the reason for that is that everybody who just needed permission to be sexual and to be empowered sexually got their permission, and then they didn't want to go to sex therapists when they had problems. They wanted to go to marriage counselors who knew about sexuality. Which, you know, brings us to the, that's, this is a, uh, in David Starch's book, uh, Passionate Marriage, where he started in sex therapy. You know, he makes the point, which is a very valid point, that, that people need to, to, to support their individual development as well as their couple's development and have an intentional sexuality with each other mm -hmm. that involves mutual respect and mutual power and a radical acceptance of what is. Um, now, what that leads to is what I call American Tantra, which is, the conscious, intentional support of a conscious love affair, which is quite difficult. And one of the reasons it's difficult is, if you think about it, most of your states of consciousness fit together. You know, the Jeff that gets up in the morning, eats breakfast, you know, shaves and hangs out with his friends, goes to the movies and, you know, does his podcast and so on, you know, works on your, in, in the garden. All those Jeffs kind of fit together. You know, you, you can kind of have a picture of them. But how about, you know, Jeff and his lover naked in the throes of passion? kind of doesn't fit naturally into between having lunch and then going to my two o'clock meeting. <laughs> you know, you have to intentionally put it in there. Mm -hmm. And what happens in modern, in modern marriages, because it's so kid-centric, is what happens is people put too much resource and energy into the kids and what, and, and what they imagine they should be doing. And what happens is self-care and care of the relationship then begins to be sacrificed. And one of, the, sac one of the, the, the areas of sacrifice is the love affair. Because people are raised to, with movies. You know, you have sex when you feel like having sex. Well, in, in a marital love affair, you don't wait to feel like having sex. You have sex when you have an opportunity to have sex. And often even when you begin, you don't feel like it. You know, it's fine. In fact, I have a whole therapist in the wild. Do it when you don't feel like it. You know, premeditated sex in a marriage is necessary. And you start often when you don't feel like it. And what matters is whether you feel like it in two or three minutes. Yeah. And almost everybody, your people, couple will not have sex. I'm not kidding. Months, two months, three months, four months. Yeah. And then they'll have sex, and they'll roll over and go, "God, we should do this more often." Well, duh, yeah, we should do it more often. But the the way to do it more often is we have to get out of this this culturally induced dissociation that we have, that somehow sex has to spontaneously arise out of our out of our life. Sex is not sex is not going to spontaneously arise continually in, in a mutually satisfying way out of almost every marriage. It has to become intentional. Mm -hmm. And that's what I mean by American Tantra. You first make sex um, intentional. Then, which, which isn't as easy as, as easy as it sounds, 
because people have inhibitions around this. Let me just ask you, Keith, uh, in, I know you've dealt with literally thousands of married couples. That's right. What percentage is, is sex the problem or, you know, central problem? And, 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 and also this unfortunate situation where you have one person in the couple who's really not that interested anymore. Well, um, with, with couples that aren't happy with each other, it's almost always a problem. You know, you mm-hmm. know, in a way, good sex is a keystone habit. You know, a keystone habit is a habit that you ch- like exercise. You change it, and a lot of other things change, get yeah. better. So almost every couple where, where they're not happy with each other, they're not happy with each other sexually. And partly that's due because sex, of course, is contextual, particularly for, for women. And that's genetically driven. I mean, sex is contextual for mice. A couple of mice are having sex. You know, you throw a little bit of cheese in there. The male my, mouse does not care about that cheese. You know, he's having sex. <laughs> Female mice, she gets kind of, mouse, she's kind of interested. <laughs> you, know, you know, women see better, hear better, see better in the dark, have a better sense of touch and taste. This was designed to be sensitive to context, social context, and particularly raising children. And that's true social context. So I tell guys all the time, you're talking about American tantra, talking about sexuality, the way that we think about sex with your wife is it's lovemaking all the time. It's all lovemaking. Hmm. Getting up is lovemaking. Taking her to the store is love. It's all making love. And your job is to do it, do it well. And then where I tell the, 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 her, the partners is for you to have the kind of love that you want in your family, you need to maintain your husband. And how do you maintain your husband? You maintain him by finding out what lights him up and lighting him up. You know, and making that an intentional process. In most relationships, for instance, there's one person who wants sex more frequently, one person who wants sex less frequently. The, the only way that gets reconciled to a way so both people feel fulfilled is with some kind of intentional uh, connection where you're accepting where both of you are at, and then you find something that works for both of you. And you continue to work at that. And you do not be satisfied with less than feeling fulfilled. I tell my couples, if, if I stopped you, you and, your, and your wife or your husband randomly throughout the week and ask you, are you both fulfilled in your marital love affair? My standard is 80% of the time you'd say yes. Mm-hmm. If you're saying yes less than 80% of the time, then you need to work on your marital love affair. You need to work on making it better for you. And then, so first of all, you make it intentional. Then you, make it, you schedule it. Then you work at radical acceptance. I have a thing that I do called a lust map. Here's how you do a lust map. This is everybody oh, listening good. out here. I suggest you do this lust map, and then you have your partner do your lust map, and you look at it. You get a big sheet of paper in the center. You put a three-inch circle, and you put my lust map in that circle center. And then you put a wavy line. You can use different colors, and you put things that turn you on and things that turn you off at the end of each line. And you draw pictures, and you paste on things. You can put plants on it, whatever you want. Make it a work of art. And you keep doing it until you have this masterpiece of your lust map, everything that turns you on and turns you off at hmm. this moment. And it's complicated because what turns you on in the beginning of lovemaking might not be what turns you on in the middle. For instance, a lot of people like light kissing in the middle, but they like heavy kiss in the, in the beginning, but they like heavy kissing in the middle. Or light stroking in the beginning, but then heavy stroking or heavy thrusting towards the end. You know, in other words, what you like sexually actually changes from the beginning to the middle to the end of lovemaking. Hmm. And you have habits. And sex is just like tennis or dancing. You know, you can develop bad habits, 
Yeah, I had a friend once. She came to me. She was all worried. This was back in 1977. I, re- I always remember this. And she said, Keith, I'm worried about my, my lover. I said, what? She says, every time he comes, he says, Jesus fucking Christ. <laughs> I said, well, she says, I really hate it. I said, well, have you told him? She says, yeah, but he can't stop. I went, well, that's a bad habit. You know, they're both <laughs> Catholics, which made it even worse, right? Yeah, yeah. And so, first of all, it's just like tennis. You learn the right strokes. <laughs> See, yeah. That's a good metaphor. <laughs> and then, like tennis, you have to keep practicing. You know, if you don't play tennis for a couple of months, I don't care how good you are, you'll be lousy. So, you know, you, you do it regularly, and you learn some basic principles. You know, David Data was once asked, what's one bit of advice you'd give somebody about sex? And David said, slow down. Hmm. And everybody has their own slow down. Another uh, uh, piece of advice is that I give people is stay attuned to each other. Stay connected. Uh, David Snarch says, make eye contact. Have eyes open sex. Mm-hmm. See each other. Um, Another one is radical acceptance. You know, often our lover will like something that we don't like or even find repulsive. And then, you know, then we want to convince them that what they like is repulsive. Bad idea. That's not American Tantra. If they, the thing is, if they like it and we don't like it, fine, we don't have to do it. But we need to accept that they like it. You know, if she likes her toes sucked, that's fine. You don't have to like sucking her toes. But you know what? It's fine that she likes her toes sucked. Or, you know, if he likes, if he likes doggy style, you might not like doggy style, but it's fine that he likes it. Mm-hmm. You know, you need to accept the other person. Yeah. And also recognize, this is going back to American Tantra, that fantasy and reality are only loosely connected. You know, I, I, God, God, I work with so many people who are ashamed or guilty about their fantasies. I tell them, look, it's just a fantasy. Fantasy is not reality. You can do anything you want in the privacy of your mind. You know, it's fine. It's not a reality. You can imagine shooting me right now. You imagine it shooting me. Okay, now you feel guilty. You just killed Keith. No, you didn't kill Keith. It's just a fantasy. Yeah. Okay. By the way, that's, you know, some sessions are more fun than others. It's always a fun session when people want to talk about sexual fantasy. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah. You know, guys, usually it's something that they like. But with women, it's kind of more organized. There's about six themes for scripted fantasies that women have, and then they have a lot of unscripted fantasies. Oh, do tell. <laughs> well, okay. So first you establish fantasies are fine. Um, you establish it's fine to fantasize when you're having sex. People worry about that. I go, no, it's fine to fantasize when you're having sex. Fantasizing when you're having sex is one way of staying, staying in the moment because what fantasies do is they make it more difficult for you to distract yourself away from sex. Um, uh, in one study, people that, that had trouble coming back from a distraction into being sexual had the worst sex lives. So if fantasy gets you back into the moment, that's fine. Um, now, guys will generally have a fantasy that they like that starts when they're an adolescent, and then there'll be some kind of version of that throughout their lives. And most guys like variety. We're programmed to like variety. And 30% of guys have had fantasy sex with over 1,000 women. And, okay, now, now not to, you know, have a gender bias or so on, but I imagine most gay men have had sex with at least 1,500 yeah. <laughs> other men. In their fantasies. Yeah, yeah, fantasy, yeah. fantasy sex. You know, fantasy sex. That's guys. Women will have either scripted or unscripted fantasies. Unscripted fantasies with women are like a train coming over, building pressure, and then reaching the summit of the mountain and then going down the other side. Or a flower blossoming. Or the sun coming up. Hmm. Um, you know, the, one woman had a, uh, she had a fantasy of a, uh, of a water wheel that had tongues on the end of the water wheel that was licking her vagina. I mean, Wham! You know, that's, those are unscripted fantasies. Scripted fantasies will have themes. 
like what the, the genetically programmed themes in women are one I am the adorable sex goddess um, theme. Mm-hmm. Uh, like I said, there's a heart, there's a dedicated series of neural circuits for this one where you look at me and desire me and want me, and that's a turn on. Another hardwired one is the ravish me fantasy, where the right guy at the right time just takes me. Okay, that's ravish me fantasy. Um, another one is a voyeur, voyeur fantasy, watching other people have sex. Mm-hmm. Another is the fantasy of being humiliated um, in the right way, in the way that turns you on. And then another one is humiliating a guy, dominating mm-hmm. a guy. So interestingly, if you if you do a study, if you if you look at men and women, men have more being dominated and humiliated fantasies than women do. Interesting. Uh, yeah, I find that fascinating. Yeah. Well, you know, it's, you mentioned David Data a, a, a few minutes ago, and uh-huh. you know, one of the distinctions he makes developmentally is that, as you said, for most of human history, or for a good part of human history at least, the male dominated the female, and this was, yeah. you know, right up through traditionalism. And then when we move into modernism and postmodernism, we become more egalitarian. And that that actually, you know, there's huge fundamental benefits to that in terms of cultural and relationship and so forth. But sexually, it can take some of the air out and some of the juice out of the system. Yeah. And we're seeing, uh, I think, of the, the, the cultural phenomena of Fifty Shades of Grey. That thing mm-hmm. sold 100 million copies that <laughs> You know, it's uh, it's astonishing, and uh, you know, there's a big sort of a lot of it's it's in the air this bondage and discipline and and S and M, and that uh, power dynamics sort of maybe come back online in a post postmodern world in a way where it's safer and more fun to play with. Yes, the, and you know, data. The genius of data's work is he takes complicated uh, and integrally informed perspectives. And makes them very simple. You know, his concept is first stage, egocentric. Second stage, you know, we're all equal, but we lose polarity. And third stage, we do whatever it takes to, to create more love and more passion. So in the third stage, what's interesting is, one, you know, who's in the more masculine or more feminine role in the sexual dance at this moment? And if I'm in the more masculine role, then I need to inhabit that in a way that increases the polarity with us. And to a certain extent, I need to give my more feminine qualities to my partner as she needs to give her more masculine qualities to me. The more, the more that distance increases in general in lovemaking, the more charge that you have. And that needs, to a certain extent, needs to run off of your lust map. It needs to run off of what works for both of you. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's idiosyncratic. Um, and and it's also it not necessarily, well, and it's also not necessarily um, gender-based. As, as you said, uh, more and more men are interested in the being dominated. So that's, you know, more traditionally the feminine role. Well, you know, more practically than I do, but, but all the gay couples that I've worked with, when they have sex, usually person, each person kind of knows what they're doing in terms of what the role is at this moment. And usually there's, there's a top and a bottom during the the sexual occasion. Absolutely. And the polarity can be very, very strong and it's not necessarily, you know, the same person in each, in each session. That's, I think, one of the, you know, there's, there's, there's research just talking about on gay couples. Um, one thing about gay couples is that they tend to not stay together as long as, as right. straight couples, interestingly, maybe because of the homophobia in the culture. But also, in some studies, gay couples have more collaborative problem solving, more humor, and certainly more openness around sexual issues. Uh, I remember one, one lesbian woman I was working with once, a couple, and one woman said, I want to be the girl once in a while. <laughs> She's all pissed off about it. 
it seems pretty reasonable to me. Yeah. Um, now, once once a couple actually gets to the point where they're having this conversation about what gets them off, and they're they're cultivating radical acceptance, and they're looking um, at each they're looking at each other's lust maps. Yeah, they're looking at each other's lust maps. You, you, usually, you know, when I talk to people that, uh, who do specific sexual stuff, you know, either the alternative people, um, there's, there's some in the polyamory community, so there's some in um, the tantric community, or the more traditional people, the sex therapy people. I say, you know, when people start specifically working on, on sex, you know, for me, uh, my hardest work is done at that particular point. Mm-hmm. Because I have convinced them that the marital love affair is a big deal and that they need to intentionally sustain it. And, and, and then when that happens, an awful lot of other things fall into place. And so the advantages of this, Jeff, are staggering. Hmm. Um, the tantric practice of two people adjusting each other, influencing each other to be their best selves, accelerates development on every developmental line. Happily married people live longer, they're healthier, um, their kids do better, they're more successful, they make more money. I mean, I could go on and on and on. Every, med- every benefit imaginable. Um, a Swedish couple uh, study showed that the guys that had good relationships, um, that was more important than whether they smoked, drank, or were obese. <laughs> hmm. And yeah. not only that, in terms of consciousness, um, you know what, as you go deeper and deeper into the marital love affair, and, which is important because that's what distinguishes that relationship from other relationships, it opens you up to be more intimate with other people. You know, because I'm, I'm resolved and clear in my marital love affair it, with, with Becky, it makes it much easier in a way to, to, in an unobstructed way, feel enormous sexual appreciation for other people, you know, and, and beautiful women. And they can feel that without it being icky because they can feel my boundary around that, mm-hmm. which is a really big deal. Um, Interesting. Yeah. And that's another thing about intentional sexuality. People need to be aware of erotic polarities and learn how to adjust them. And that's part of American Tantra, at least as I teach it. Um, yeah, it, look, it, it's interesting. You t- I'm just sort of stuck on that, that what you're saying, that because you and Becky have this crucible of your American Tantra, your marital love affair, that because of this, you have more um, sexual energy or with other women? Or what, what do you mean there? Well, well for, first of all, a great marital love affair doesn't... Uh, it doesn't mean that you're not going to have a secret affair. 70% of people who have secret affairs say they're satisfied sexually with their spouse. Hmm. So it, it, it's not a show. But, but if you're aware of erotic polarity, okay, so if you're aware of that, that the energetic exchange between you and another person, then you're aware when you're whatever your polarity is. When you're aware that when there's an erotic tingle to that. If you're a more masculine person, generally with, with a more feminine person. Or if you're a more feminine person, generally with a more masculine person. If that erotic polarity becomes an object of awareness, you begin to regulate it. Now, the combination of having a resolved marital love affair and I'll do what it takes commitment, combined with an awareness of erotic polarity, allows you to adjust those polarities to serve the highest good. Hmm. And so I can look at a woman and compliment her about being beautiful or being even sexy. She can receive it if she feels me not intruding too much into, you know, that erotic polarity, not amping it too much. And if she can feel that there's a boundary there where I'm not coming on to her, you know, I'm just appreciating her, basically offering devotion to her feminine, to the goddess in her. And women know the difference. You know, there's a difference between a guy 
just offering devotional appreciation to her erotic light, <laughs> and a guy pushing the boundary, um, intruding. They feel the difference. You know, one feels good, the other doesn't. Most women will feel that. And so even, you'll feel it even if you're not consciously aware of erotic polarities. And so if you're aware of erotic polarities, I feel like we have a responsibility to adjust them to serve the highest good. That combined with a resolved marital love affair means actually there's a lot more sexuality available. I feel sexual polarities all the time. You know, there's a lot of sexuality that surrounds me. But, you know, I feel sexuality looking out at nature. Nature's very feminine. I'm pretty masculine. There's an erotic quality about that. And that's an enlivening quality. That's beautiful. Um, People suffer when they're disconnected from that, and they don't even know that they're suffering because uh, they're disconnected. Yeah. I had an interesting little minor situation. A couple weeks ago, I was walking just down the street here. It was a beautiful day in Boulder. I was feeling good, whatever. And this girl walks by, and I saw her maybe coming a block away. And she got beside me. You know, We were crossing each other. and, and, um, And I said, you're looking beautiful today. And she didn't like it. I mean, I could see her face. You know, we just kept walking, so it wasn't a big deal. But it was like, oh, gosh, I, I think I intruded. I think, you know, she felt uh, somehow aggressed upon. And, you know, I, I, I almost wanted to go back and follow and say, hey, I'm gay. I mean, I'm completely harmless. <laughs> you know, there's more about me than you. I'm sorry, you know. But, uh, you know, it, it didn't work that time, at least. And you notice that was a little trauma. You still remember it? Yeah, I do. Later? I do. I felt bad about it. You know, it actually know. taught me something. It was, and I remembered that video that was going around, uh, you know, maybe six months ago of this, of the woman who walked through New York City for oh, yeah, 10 right. minutes and she yeah. got like 130 catcalls slash compliments slash, you know, and I, I thought, oh, I get it. These women, you know, they're dealing with this thing that I don't know anything about, you know, so. I guess well, I'll hard. stop doing you know, that. A lot of women become invisible around that. And, and learning how to be invisible is an actual skill that women learn, particularly. And, you know, women will deal, particularly women that have erotic light, that, that, they, don't, that they don't blunt, will learn to deal with that. Sometimes they'll be just clueless. They'll just be erotically radiant beyond belief and, and not notice, you know, guys falling to pieces around them. <laughs> Sometimes women will be able to change their energy so that they become uh, less visible. Um, it, and, and, you know, there's a, women are actually genetically programmed to be a little bit scared of guys. Yeah. You know, uh, women have a different reaction to male anger than women have to female anger, and, and that's as it should be. You know, uh, male anger was way more dangerous to, to, to women from a genetic standpoint, an evolutionary standpoint, than, than female anger was to guys. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so if you can see that, and then you can adjust it, um, and then and also forgive yourself. You know, I don't yeah. know, God knows, I can think of moments. I remember pulling up next to this gorgeous woman in this stunning bikini at, at the pool where I swim, and I said, love your suit, and I could see the same cringe yeah. you saw. Yeah. Like, oh, shit. You know, so that was like, I don't know, three years ago, and I'm still remembering it, Jeff. <laughs> yeah, I know. And I, I kind of don't want to stop doing that, but, I de- you know, it, it definitely threw me back, and, you know, I guess we just well, have to bring as much mindfulness to these things as we can. Well, you know, for me, you know, so if you had just smiled at her, that might have worked. Yeah. That might have been just enough exactly. polarity to her to feel seen and appreciated yeah. and not intruded upon. Yeah, that's right. And then that's, that's the polarity. That's what we notice. And then if we adjust, we receive influence. Then, And now, you notice this is a big deal in marriages because married people are around other people and you have to kind of deal with your wife 
around other guys and your husband around other women. And if you can't receive influence from each other, then that creates wounds in marriages if people don't adjust polarities in ways that make their partner comfortable and that are realistic. Um, and that's just that's another part of the marital love affair. Yeah. And, and also, sex itself is vulnerable as we age. You know, you have to keep being sexual to stay sexual as you get older, which is another reason to have an intentional love affair. And so, the, the part. So, how do we have great intergrouping for marriage as well? But one, we have we, we we recognize that at some point we need to to, to shift into I'll do what it takes commitment, and, and we need a partner who's willing to do that, and we need to be able to maintain ourselves and help maintain our partner in terms of feeling healthy and loved. Um, um, but then that's we need to to, uh, to arrange to to be and stay securely attached with each other. Um, um, and to do that, we need to, to structure into our lives uh, ceremonies and practices that um, connect us and honor us and delight us. And we need to have families that aren't completely organized around children. They're organized around everybody developing, and sometimes the kids have to defer to the parents having a good time or having parent time and stuff mm-hmm. um, and have their own responsibilities. And we need to have uh, parental marital love affairs that are intentional and that are, are able to be adjusted throughout the life stages. You know, and, and as we do that, it, those marriages are, you know, that's, that's how the Taj, the Taj Mahal was created by a guy who had a marriage like that, I suspect. Yeah. And she died. I mean, he had 14 children with that woman. Hmm. Oh, for heaven's um, sake. And, and then when she died, he built the Taj Mahal. There was something special about that yeah. relationship. And I suspect that on some level, they had one of these marriages that I'm talking about. And he knew that there was something different about her, and he wanted to build a temple to that after she died. Wow. Well, that's the title of your next book, Keith, The Taj Mahal Marriage. (laughs) There you go. (laughs) Wow. And if all of that doesn't work, then, of course, we have uh, divorce, which is, uh, I think, the topic of our next conversation. Yeah. You know, it's, it's not a particularly great, happy topic, but it's an important one. Yeah. You know, 40 to 50% of people get divorces, and divorces are always a pain in the ass, and they're always expensive, and they always involve suffering, but there can be less expense and less suffering if we're informed. Yeah. And so, yeah, we'll talk about that. All right. Well, but today I, we talked about integrally informed marriages, happy marriages, marriages that help us keep regulating each other tantrically into unity with God. Well, damn right. And that is, what a delicious container that is to live in, uh-huh. you know, so... Well, thank you so much, Dr. Keith. Uh, it's always so much fun to talk uh, to you and to um, share this with our listeners. And thank you all for listening. We really appreciate your being with us. And thanks, Dr. Keith. Thank you. Thank you, everybody. Much love to everybody. All righty. Bye-bye, folks.